0: Thank you for downloading this Desenio podcast. For more information, visit com. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: Today's talk is going to be chaired by Joseph Grima, and we're joined by the writing and curator Vera Schietti, uh Carl-Johan Skog from HDK in Gothenburg, and Sarah Mann from the British Council.
0: Good morning, everyone. In the moment of, of history we inhabit um, is... An extraordinary one, because maybe I think it could one could argue that for the first time we operate within an environment um, which is on one hand completely or to some extent largely globalized um, and is uh, we have a degree of access and um, how, how can I say kind of freedom of um, communication of transportation of access on every possible definition of the word um, and this uh, is. Something that, I mean, beyond the kind of obvious implications of simply being able to go out to Malpensa and get on a plane, um, there are interesting implications in the sense that it's maybe the first time that there is no outside to the economy that we inhabit. It's a totalizing entity, something that really envelopes the whole world, if you think about even just... Um, uh, before 89 there was an entirely different economy that existed with very little sort of back and forth um, between these two sealed um, environments. Um, and yet now and now there's, it's all one, we exist, we're all connected in some way to um, each other and that's something that <clears throat> really puts us in a position of great, um, in the one hand, great empowerment but on the other hand it tends to in a way um, bring on us the imperative to perpetuate the same model, to take it more to the extreme. And of course the model that we're perpetuating is the model a model based on growth. And I think this question of the circular economy is an interesting one because to some extent, I must say, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm not going to go too far out of my depth as into economics, but uh, uh, the idea of an e- economy that is not, uh, that doesn't necessarily rely on this need for continual growth um, is a very interesting one. And I think that design... Um, It's become uh, more and more apparent over recent editions of um, The Salone, how there is a search among designers for an alternative to this. So I would like to kick off this panel by asking maybe um, if you have your thoughts on this um, idea of a circular economy. First by starting uh, off by kind of questioning, is this um, something like if, if we Understand it in relation to the linear economy, an economy of consumption of um, uh, of um, use and waste um, how can we is this something that uh, designers have a responsibility to what extent is this something that we are, that the designer is actually able to enact? Um, is it something that is uh, uh, that 's all achievable or are we all just wasting our time in fact even talking about it?
2: I was just struck about what you just said that this sort of like moment that we live in today. Is this moment in which you know you can just get on get on a plane, go anywhere? You're very empowered, but at the same time, I feel like many of us are very lost um, because you're just like, okay, now that it's like this is the new normal, and the new normal is so much bigger and so much more daunting than the old normal. Um, what next? And so I feel that's that's how it, it came to be that that people are trying to find sort of a searching for an alternative. At the same time, I feel like. Um, it's not a waste of time to be here, otherwise I wouldn't be here <laughs> talking about this. Um, but at the same time, it, it is a daunting perspective. But you know, as we were just uh, chatting uh, earlier on, it might be that we are actually forced to choose an alternative because maybe in 20 years the world is not going to be... Uh, like it is today. I mean, we continue to, to say that. Everybody says that. We continue to not believe it because we just wake up every morning and everything's still the same and the apocalypse didn't come. Um, but it, it is going to come. You know, it is coming. You know, it, it maybe takes 20 years, maybe takes 25 years, but the moment that you have the European Union or other sort of stru- superstructures um, commissioning reports on why we have to make a 20-step plan to get there, uh, I mean, if they got it and they're trying to figure it out, I mean, we should probably worry as well. Um, so it might be that we are gonna be forced by external powers uh, to wake up from our sort of days and uh, actually... Yeah.
3: So I think that's the question. What do we do about it? Uh, yeah, the small question, the small topic. Uh, yeah, we had to talk as well. Of course, design has a, a, an opportunity here and the and responsibility as all have. I think this is so, and we also had a talk about it, it's so complex because circular economy regards everything and everyone and then makes it completely complex. On the other hand, it's so easy because if we just take, it will end. So it's this kind of positioning here that we need to work with. And I think if you look at economy as some kind of a how to divide insufficient resources, that is some kind of looking at economy. You can look at as. A transit, a kind of interface between production and user, and of course, we were redrawing the map of design today, so if we started out to be one of the really huge problems within this field, because we increased consumption, today, I mean, that map also includes to produce knowledge as one part of it, and then I think design is really uh, important to to include in that kind of processes and learning uh, and understanding. So I think today design has all opportunities to work within these these processes, mm. uh, not just as developing the new products, but also to actually develop knowledge mm. from this mm. and including people into that. Yeah. Mm.
1: I think it's. A, I mean, I think it presents an incredible opportunity for design to reorganise its systems. I think that's what's so interesting about it for me. And I, th- I think the way it will probably have to work best is this kind of combination of grassroots. We were talking about repair culture, about maker spaces, about an interest in local manufacturing, coupled with a change in sort of bigger global policy. Um, but I, I think the, the biggest challenge for design specifically is how it can kind of challenge itself because it is based on a very kind of linear um, business model and, and I think you know being here it kind of reinforces the fact that you know design has to kind of rethink the way it, it uses itself.
0: I think again there's, this is, there's just so much that we have become accustomed to take for granted and really not question and one of the things that um, I think we've been sort of culturally um, trained to Take, as, uh, take for granted and to consider true is the idea that ultimately we will, the, the drift towards a market-driven um, economy in which ultimately the, the, the free market will solve all problems and brands have a sort of an inherent social response, ultimately they will do good, um, is problematic. And so the follow-up question I wanted to ask is, uh, is design enough? Can we design this problem? Because I mean it's also that is very much part of a, a sort of right-wing narrative of kind of techno um, solutionism where ultimately research we can we can just kind of continue consuming the shit out of the planet because ultimately we're going to come up with some sort of technological solution that will fix everything and so the, the most important thing is to just keep making sure that the sort of market is fostering you know the growth of the economy which will then fund research which will then yeah, designers. I agree with you that
2: it's very problematic. I mean, obviously, design has so many limitations, and the the, 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 the worry, worrying thing is that in the last years we've become sort of used to this narrative that the designer—we are all designers. Design is a power we all have. Design—it's a human impulse. We are all makers. We are all design. I mean, fair enough, but at the same time, limits to this, please, because I mean, I I, I just just want to throw up when again there's this narrative about how wonderful all of this is and this sort of like silicon valley optimism that we see sort of co-opted by all of these initiatives i mean it's so it's just despair it makes me despair really <laughs> no but you know it's just like it, it yes there should be the very real understanding that we cannot th- do this alone and designers shouldn't even try, actually, because these problems are too complex. It's when, like, we had this sort of first social design boom and designers were like, let's all go to Nairobi and solve this problem that they have in the slums there. They don't have water access. Oh, wow, let's go there and solve it. And so just plonk designers there for two weeks. They will workshop with the community. And then, like, they, oh, but this is how you can do it. Okay, bye, and never come back again, you know. And it's just totally wrong approach, you know. At the same time, we should just be like, okay, you know what? We can contribute this. What can an economist contribute? What can even, you know, people that do things that we don't even know uh, what their expertises are, what can they bring, you know? And, and and together build something. But the thing is, like, together, together, again, I'm falling into this sort of, like, romantic notion that we're all gonna, like, just hold hands and come to a solution, and it's gonna be amazing, you know? Fact is, it's gonna be messy, and it's gonna be weird, and it's gonna be a lot of trial and error, it's gonna be a lot of, like, maybe it works for here, maybe it doesn't work. And then, maybe it's gonna have to have have to be, like, very local, very specific, but then again, not try and make it elitist, because the problem with local is, of course, it can be very elitist. You know, you're just like, it works for us. I don't care about the rest of you humans, but five of us are safe, you know? You know, this is the
1: inherent challenge with the idea of the makerspace, is that it becomes incredibly exclusive. Um, And I I think, you know, of course design isn't enough, and I think you're right, there is this kind of slightly utopian version of the world where everybody's accessing these workshops and learning new skills and repairing all of their belongings, but the reality is actually there are huge challenges with access and diversity in makerspaces, Um, and the people who actually really would benefit from the skills that, that are being propagated by them aren't accessing them. So I think that's a really big question we need to ask ourselves is that if we want to mainstream kind of the idea of repair and restoration and a skills based economy, you know, we need to kind of break down the barriers that in these makerspaces that we're proliferating all over the world and also try and find a way of connecting them because the idea of them being embedded in a local community and um, networked internationally is, is brilliant, and for a cultural relations organisation like the British Council, incredibly alluring. But actually, they're not connected, um, really. So I, mean, I think for me, I'd I, I throw down that challenge especially, is how do we make it more accessible in more of us.
0: And how... Oh, sorry.
3: Colin. Yeah, yeah you can no, no, yeah I, mean, I think of course we need to work together with others design and I think that's a wonderful thing I mean design is nothing without others what is design if we don't cooperate with others you know so it's necessary we need to do that uh, but what I think what we actually should do I had a talk to Arjen Vals, who is a professor at Wageningen University in the Netherlands, between transformative learning. And we had a look at this, uh, you know, the development, sustainable development goals of the UN, and it was really interesting that frame eight is actually saying economic growth. And it's, I, for me, I, I don't think we can work with circular economies and still even talk about economic growth. I mean, how do they go together? Actually, I don't know. I mean, then we'll turn to number 17, where it's very much about partnership. And within that, the subtitle is very much to capacity building. But the thing is, whatever we do, policies, we need policies that we will come to. Uh, Thing is, though, that all of the policies, take the car industry as an example. You have a policy, you have a rule, regulations, and something happens. But we're still within the same system it's the same kind of system of industry and mass production so what we talked about is what we actually need to do is that we need to build disruptive capacity building mm-hmm. as we need to disrupt the systems and once again i think design has a great opportunity to be one of these who can disrupt systems to hack them or to even bring up things on the table uh, to have a critical view on things uh, so i think yeah, and then, of course, you need to collaborate, but this disruptive capacity building, that might be something for us to look into. Coming back to the topic of the discussion, which
0: ultimately is policy, uh, I think this is um, a really fascinating one because in, in a way the policy is the framework within it w- that regulates how everything operates. It's sort of the the, the the cogs of the machine. And in a way, I think in the existing policy framework that we operate within, as, uh, uh, within, within which the designer operates, there are a lot of implications, a lot, a lot is prescribed already, the way that you, the, the degree to which, one of the biggest problems for um, the sort of open design narrative in a way is the limitation, the kind of the legal responsibility of actually leaving something to the end user, the kind of the, the taking on the responsibility something somebody's actually going to hurt themselves. Um, obviously there are, that's something that even a project like this takes on, there are far quote-unquote, safer ways of making a stage than this one, probably. There are ways that it could be far more, um, I don't know, uh, 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 less, could not have gaps between the bits of wood. Um, And what, what, what role does responsibility have in your eyes, in your view to actually enact this transformation, because without policy, I would argue, it's all complete waste of time, because we can dream as much as we like about secure economies, but ultimately, and, and I mean, I think there's a lot of people who would actually challenge that, but ultimately, I believe that policy is actually the only way that this is ever, ever, anything is ever going to change. If we leave it up to the free market, there's no way.
1: Yeah, I would completely agree with you, and I, I think I think the question is also how do we influence policy, and how do we sort of break this conversation out of the, uh, the sort of academia. Um, because I think there's a really interesting conversation happening. But my question is, how do we influence policymakers? So I, I think that's the thing. You know, How do we build a network of conversations that allow us to talk directly to, to policymakers on a global level? Because I think it is a global conversation. Um, I think it's really interesting to look at how uh, various city mayors are approaching this idea as well. And obviously the rise of the city as a kind of independent policymaker in 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 global politics is incredibly interesting, especially in this space, because I think, you know, if you look at London, um, you know, our new mayor in the first two years, you know, one of his first thing, his first policy policy-making ideas was to look at the uh, industrial strategy f- for London um, and what he's going to do this autumn is launch a new industrial strategy that looks at, at mixed use, but through, through the lens of, of uh, light industrial um, about a mixed economy, about access to maker spaces, to work, open workshops, about skills sharing. So it's obviously, um, it's on the agenda, but I think actually looking at it from the city perspective is quite interesting. And obviously it feeds into things like Fab City, this idea of these kind of connected um, manufacturing hubs around the world. But I think, you know, unless, unless it's taken on by them, and ultimately in some sense um, interpreted for a wider mass audience. I I think that's where the real block comes.
2: I feel designers also shouldn't be afraid to sort of have conversations with different kinds of authorities, like higher sorts kinds of authorities. I feel like we also sort of are afraid of doing that. We're afraid of, of going up to somebody that actually has some sort of political power, some sort of agency over the territory or over the place where we live in. And we shouldn't be afraid of that because, you know, why not? Like, in the end, it's, it's a matter of trying. And I, and I feel like people are willing to have these kinds of conversations. Not a lot of designers are having these sorts of conversations with higher spheres of power. Um, but maybe well, you at least have not examples. The, not the
0: designers who uh, are necessarily here at Salone. Yeah. I think there's probably actually a lot of people just outside yeah. the yeah. circle of... The circular economy of Salonia, where we talk to each other.
1: But I think sometimes design gets caught in the prosperity and economic agenda. And I, I think that's where, if you're talking, if I think you're absolutely right, to connect the, the right kind of designers to policymakers is, is absolutely essential for this to succeed. But often, what we see is design is talked about as a kind of. Um, a creative economy essentially and that you know often if reports are issues you know that try to influence or lobby government in some way they're always about economic value and they're very rarely about sort of social value or the proposition that design can actually change the way we live so I think that that's a big thing that needs to change but you know that's tough and getting access to politicians for design is, is incredibly difficult. So I think something, you're talking about your global, something that our positions design sort of in this conversation with a direct link to policymakers, I think would be very powerful.
0: The economist uh, Michelle Bowens, who's the um, the leader of the, well, founder of the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, has this incredible archive online of examples, practices, writings about um, alternative economies, not just the circular economy, but... Um, circular economy, among others. Uh, one of the very interesting points or arguments that he makes is that transformation, change is inevitable, um, and we are at a moment of transformation from one model, economic model to another. Um, but anyway, the argument that he makes is that a new system is always born inside of an old system. Uh, so I was wondering, in, in, your, in the course of your observations, uh, have you come across anything that you would consider to be uh, evidence of this new system being born around us?
3: Yeah, but it's a small thing though. But uh, regarding the science, this kind of uh, how is it situated? How is it communicated? Uh, Within our own practice and education, yeah, actually, I can see that. <laughs> Through all years of that, I mean, uh, design as as an education looks the same for 100 years, more or less, but Mm it starts to change. And then all of these participatory design processes and co-design processes is getting, I mean, more and more present, but not just within education, but also from the outside. And suddenly we see that this is a knowledge and a, and a resource that we have, that we are rather close to human beings and we are this transition between production and the user maybe. So th- that is, uh, for me, a, a field that is growing, uh, but not just within design, but also outside design. So we, you know, we get so many questions about, can't you help us with this kind of processes? So I think here's, that, that is a change for me, if you, if you want to include people. Then something happens, of course, and then you need to have an idea if you open enough. Of course, there's a lot of check boxes here, but we need to take away these check boxes. That yeah, is.
0: Have you seen any interesting examples of an implementation of that?
3: Ah, uh, yeah, that's always that question, isn't it? <laughs> have you seen it? And is not that annoying thing yeah, called reality. Yeah, yeah and, and not that often, to be honest. But I think that, but it starts to. I think that will happen because if you work long enough with it everyone will get the knowledge and experience about it and, you know, an understanding of how to work with it. So I, I think it will be. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, no, actually, I, I, I don't know if I have one. You know, clearly, this is, this is about... that Everyone has, has a say in this, an agency in it, to be honest.
1: I, th- I think that there's a very small example I can think of. There's a project um, in the UK called Fixbats. It's run by a professor at Kingston University, and it's a very sort of simple premise. Uh, a designer finds someone with a problem, they create a client relationship, and the designer fixes that problem for them. Or, but it's, a, it's very much about the conversation. Um, and the founder of that is now trying to formalize this project into a, a qualification. So he's trying to work within the very rigid examination board system in the UK to try and actually make fixing um, a GCSE so that every 16-year-old would leave, uh, leave school with, with the ability to fix something, however small. So I think small things like that, working within those sort of very rigid systems would, would be incredibly beneficial. Uh, and I think it's sort a of step in the right direction. I mean, unfortunately, they're all around nice stories like that our educa- arts education system is being dismantled
0: yeah. <laughs> or you have systems like the Apple iPhone that in- contains seven different types of screws with yeah. the precise
1: yes, exactly. yeah.
0: purpose of stopping anybody yes. being able
1: absolutely.
3: to absolutely yeah. 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 Uh, for me maybe the problem with this is that I mean if we really want to make a change we need to have some kind of a, an agonistic approach we need to have you know a friction it needs to be a tension in it and there's a lot of these processes that always you know you just go along with each other you agree on things but you, well we different people different personalities cultures we cannot agree upon anything but we need this kind of tension as well positive tension
2: <laughs> Well I have to say that one of the, some of the pro- projects that I've seen that that leave me to have some sort of hope uh, in what's to come um, are connected usually with like very real necessities from the people that initiate them so somehow it's a necessity that arises from the territory or because you know it's either like an impoverished region of a certain country that needs to do something about its current uh, status or it's something so simple as for example this project of Dominic Wilcox uh, Little Inventors I, I really like it it's such a super simple idea but it's so potentially very very could be have could have a huge impact in, in a way. Um, at the same time, you know, also the Thomas Lemay's Open Structures project. I mean, that's definitely. I mean, and, and so many of us have used it as a reference over the years. Um, and and then you know, for example, the work you're doing with Matera in 2019. I, Will that be a success? We don't know yet, because 2019 <laughs> is still not here, but but you know, also the, the issue of success, I mean, assessment and, and, and how long do you have to wait to actually know that these things are successful or not? I mean, we're just trying to figure figure them out as we go along. Maybe they're going to be a huge failure in the first five years, but then after 10 years it's like, oh, well, like wait, it's actually moving, it has potential, it works.
0: Yeah, I guess impatience is one of the biggest uh, uh, our biggest sins.
2: Yeah, we're still in this market logic, no? I mean, it's like, exactly. if it doesn't have results in two years, axing it, over.
1: And actually, that's a really good point as well, because really boring things like funding cycles for research programs or, you know, t- testing programs are usually two to three years maximum. And that really doesn't allow anyone to to make a mistake or start again or, you know, expand their practice in any way. So I think from a policy level, having much longer funding cycles that that look at this idea would would, would be really beneficial for the design community.
0: You've been listening to a Desenio podcast. For more podcasts, visit com.